I'm Krista Tippett. Today, Einstein's God. Albert Einstein did not believe in a personal deity, but his life and his science were rich with wonder, and he often made half-serious, half-whimsical references to God or the Lord. Most famous is Einstein's tantalizing line, often quoted out of context, that God does not play dice with the universe. This hour, we'll learn what he meant when he said that, and we'll probe the contours of what Einstein called his cosmic religious sense. Uh, sometimes he was really using God as just a sort of convenient metaphor. Uh, but he did have, I think, a genuine cosmic religious feeling, a sense of admiration at the intellectual ingenuity of the universe, not just its majesty, but its uh, extraordinary subtlety and beauty and mathematical elegance. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. This hour, with two physicists and through the words of Albert Einstein himself, we explore Einstein's way of thinking about mystery, eternity, and the mind of God. From American public media, this is Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, Einstein's God. In the year 1905, a 26-year-old examiner in the Swiss patent office in Bern made a series of discoveries that altered the course of modern science. Most famously, Albert Einstein proposed the theory of special relativity, which changed the way we think about space, time, and matter. The theory is best known by a single elegant equation, E equals mc squared. Ten years later, he took that a step further by accounting for the effects of gravity in his theory of general relativity. Here's the voice of Albert Einstein speaking about an application of his discoveries in 1947. It followed from the special theory of relativity that mass and energy are different manifestations of the same thing. Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc squared showed that very small amount of mass may be converted into a very large amount of energy. Though most of us can't grasp the full sense of general relativity, scientists agree that it describes the fabric of the universe we inhabit and that without Albert Einstein, we still might not know it. One of my guests today, the astrobiologist Paul Davies, offers this analogy. Until Einstein, people thought of time and space as fixed, unchanging, and absolute, the backdrop to the great show of life. Einstein revealed that time and space themselves are elastic and mutable, that they exist in relationship with unfolding life. They are part of the show themselves. Time, space, matter, gravity, and light are all intertwined. They curve and collapse and change in response to each other. Such insights gave rise to the grand ideas that occupy physicists and cosmologists today. The Big Bang, black holes, quantum mechanics. Albert Einstein often attributed his genius to the fact that he was a late bloomer as a child. In consequence, he proposed, he remained enthralled into adulthood with elemental features of existence which most of us take for granted. Here's a reading from Albert Einstein's autobiographical notes published in 1949. Why do we come sometimes spontaneously to wonder about something? I think that wandering to oneself occurs when an experience conflicts with our fixed ways of seeing the world. I had one such experience of wandering when I was a child of four or five and my father showed me a compass. This needle behaved in such a determined way and did not fit into the usual explanation of how the world works. That is, that you must touch something to move it. 
I still remember now, or I believe that I remember, that this experience made a deep and lasting impression on me. There must be something deeply hidden behind everything. After seeing that compass, Einstein became mesmerized in turn by light and gravity. He spent his life seeking to comprehend the order deeply hidden behind everything and to describe it mathematically. Einstein often spoke of this as his longing to understand what God was thinking. When my first guest this hour, Freeman Dyson, was born in England in 1924, Albert Einstein was at the height of his fame. As a young boy, Dyson yearned to speak Einstein's language of mathematics. He went on to become an eminent theoretical physicist at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where Einstein spent the last two decades of his life. I spoke with Freeman Dyson in 2005. Let's talk about the way Einstein used the word God. And even, I mean, he did seem to make frequent references to the Lord. And he had also said that what drove him all his life, what drove him as a scientist, was understanding if God had to make the world this way. Yes, well, certainly it was not the kind of personal God that many people believe in. And he said that very explicitly, that he did not believe in a personal God who, who was interested in human affairs. He did believe in nature as a some sort of universal spirit, or I suppose you might say world soul, or some kind of universal mind which ruled the universe and which was far beyond our comprehension. And that's what he called God or the Lord. He, he was not a practicing Jew, but he certainly knew the Jewish literature and the Lord is, is a phrase that's used in the Bible in the Old Testament. There's a kind of reverence in that term, isn't there? Yes. Implicit. I mean, you have written of yourself that you are a practicing Christian but not a believing Christian, and it seems to right. me that Einstein might well have made the same statement about himself as a well, Jew. Well, he wasn't, he wasn't really a practicing Jew in this. He didn't observe the Sabbath. Right. But still, I mean, it was certainly true that he was a sort of a cultural Jew but not a believing Jew. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm quite intrigued by how he seemed to have developed a real reverence for Judaism I guess later in his life, that he saw it as a moral attitude in life and to life, not a transcendental religion, but he wrote, it is concerned with life as we live it and can up to a point grasp it and nothing else. That It seemed to him to be compatible with his, you know, his faith, as you described it, as a scientist. Oh, yes, because he took a very solemn view of science. I mean, science was to him a religion. I mean, he he said that quite explicitly. And, and of course, in later life, he became much more philosophical than he was as a young man. But in, in later life, he said explicitly that anybody who does not approach science with religious awe is not a true scientist. When you say that you're a practicing Christian but not a believing Christian, you're, aren't you also saying that you don't need or even desire to pin down a theology, that you... As a scientist, and I think that Einstein was like you in this respect, that you are accustomed to and even thrilled by what you can't yet know or haven't yet discovered. Absolutely. I mean, the world is full of mysteries, and I love mysteries. And, <laughs> and that's, of course, the science is full of mysteries. Every time we discover something, we find two more questions to ask. And so that there's no end of mysteries in science. That's what it's all about. And the same is true of religion. Theoretical physicist Freeman Dyson. In an address at a conference on science, philosophy, and religion in 1941, Albert Einstein declared that science can only be created by those imbued with an aspiration towards truth and understanding. He famously concluded, science without religion is lame, religion without science is blind. Einstein understood science and religion to be separate realms, but joined by reciprocal relationships and dependencies. Most often he stressed how both realms acknowledge and honor the human sense of mystery. The fairest 
thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and true science. He who knows it not and can no longer wonder, no longer feel amazement, is as good as dead, a snuffed out candle. It was the experience of mystery, even if mixed with fear, that engendered religion. A knowledge of the existence of something we cannot penetrate, of the manifestations of the profoundest reason and the most radiant beauty. It is this knowledge and this emotion that constitute the truly religious attitude. In this sense and in this alone, I am a deeply religious man. I cannot conceive of a God who rewards and punishes his creatures or has a will of the type of which we are conscious in ourselves. Enough for me the mystery of the eternity of life and the inkling of the marvelous structure of reality. Together with the single-hearted endeavor to comprehend a portion, be it ever so tiny, of the reason that manifests itself in nature. From the World as I See It by Albert Einstein, published in 1956. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, Einstein's God. In his greatest discoveries, Einstein focused on the laws that govern the largest dimensions and energies of physics, the mountaintops, as my guest Freeman Dyson puts it. But Einstein's work also opened physics to the study of the smallest quantum particles. And during Einstein's lifetime, quantum physicists such as Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg proceeded to find randomness and unpredictability in that sphere. In ordinary space, we throw a ball into the air and it comes back down. But at the atomic level, Heisenberg proclaimed, anything could happen. Atoms veer off in wholly unpredictable, illogical directions, seemingly of their own will. Einstein found this idea unacceptable. He drew the closest thing he had to a theology from his reverence for the writings of the 17th century Dutch philosopher Baruch Spinoza. Spinoza described God's superior intelligence manifest in the determined, harmonious order of nature. And Einstein made his most famous quip about God as he disputed the disorderly universe of quantum physics. He said repeatedly, I do not believe that God plays dice with the universe. He had this religious faith, I would say, in the power of nature, and he saw nature as something causal so that in, in some way it was predetermined from the beginning of time how it was going to go on, and that is not the way we see things happening today. Right. There's this exchange. It said that Einstein said to Niels Bohr, God does not play dice with the universe, and Bohr responded, who is Einstein to tell the Lord what to do? <laughs> yes, and I think, I mean, I'm on the side of Bohr, no okay. doubt. <laughs> well, You've also written, you wrote, the old vision which Einstein maintained until the end of his life of an objective world of space and time and matter independent of human thought and observation is no longer ours. Einstein hoped to find a universe possessing what he called objective reality, a universe of mountaintops which he could comprehend by means of a finite set of equations. Nature, it turns out, lives not on the mountaintops but in the valleys. Explain to me what you're describing there. If you look at the real nature, it's just so much more imaginative than a set of equations. What really happens in the universe is that nature finds all these extraordinarily complex structures which have their own rules. So, I mean, for example, the whole of biology is an example of that. I mean, that, hmm. you know, things happen in living creatures which you can't just describe with a set of equations. And that's true of most of science. That's true of chemistry and geology and the whole of historical sciences. You say it's more like a rainforest than a mountaintop. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's true. That's exactly the metaphor. I mean, that complexity is the essence of things. So Einstein's universe of sort of 
cold, hard space and time and defined by a set of differential equations. It's there, but it's a very small part of the real universe. It's just the mountain peaks. And... <laughs> but help me understand this. I mean, I think what's so intriguing is that, and we don't always think about it this way, but that the equations, I mean, E equals MC squared, that, that what Einstein was laying out was not something that we were creating but discovering of equations, of facts, rules, principles that somehow were there and undergird all of this. And I think that those equations and rules still somehow undergird this complex reality, the rainforest you're describing. Is that right? But it's just a lot bigger than that. Yes. These equations are quite miraculous in a certain way. I mean, the fact that nature talks mathematics I find it miraculous. I mean, I've spent in my early days calculating very, very precisely how electrons ought to behave. Well, then somebody went into the laboratory and the electron knew the answer. The electron somehow knew it had to resonate at that frequency, which I calculated. Hmm. So that to me is, is something we, at a basic level we don't understand. Why is nature mathematical? But there's no doubt it's true. And, of course, that was the basis of Einstein's faith. I mean, Einstein talked that mathematical language and found out that nature obeyed his equations too. And of course, his great moment was when they measured the deflection of light by the sun in 1919 and found that it followed his theory of gravitation. Was that the expedition? Yes, that yes. was the expedition where Eddington made the observations and confirmed the theory. Mm-hmm. And it did seem miraculous, didn't it, to people that he was right? <laughs> it was miraculous. Theoretical physicist Freeman Dyson. Einstein's theory of relativity was confirmed by two expeditions to Brazil and the West African coast in 1919 to observe the total eclipse of the sun. The eminent British astrophysicist Arthur Eddington led the project. To the amazement of Eddington and the rest of the world, Einstein had correctly calculated that space could be distorted and light curved by gravity. Einstein was on the front pages of newspapers worldwide But when asked what he would have said had his theory not been proven correct by observation, Einstein replied, I would have had to pity our dear Lord. The theory is correct all the same. He had a marvelous sense of humor, and (laughs) that's a very important part of life. And, of course, the fact is that scientists have, on the whole, cultivated a sense of humor because... So much of science is a history of failures. I mean, most, if you're a creative person, it's true in other kinds of creative life, but more in science, that so much of science ends up to be wrong and that you do something, you spend weeks and months, and finally the whole thing collapses. Well, you need to have a sense of humor. Otherwise, you couldn't survive. And Einstein, I think, understood that particularly well. I wanted to ask you what physicists are learning now that would befuddle him, what would intrigue him, and I suppose we've already wandered into that territory. What else is happening now that perhaps he made possible but that might surprise him? Well, I think the big thing that he made possible but which he never accepted was black holes, places where big stars have collapsed and effectively disappeared from the universe except that there's left behind a hole where the star used to be. So you have there a very strong gravitational field without any bottom. The black hole is the only place where space and time are really so mixed up that they behave in a totally different way. I mean, that you fall into a black hole and your space is converted into time and your time is converted into space. Sort of the ultimate relativity? Yes. Uh In a way, it's the most exciting, the most beautiful consequence of his theory. I mean, nature would not be the same without them. And I think if Einstein came back, he really would be surprised by that. I mean, he would have to accept, if he came back now, he would have to accept that black holes are real and they're they're here to stay. And they are actually a tremendous triumph for his own ideas. (laughs) So I think it would be amusing to see his reaction. I'm sure he would accept it. Probably he'd make some very suitable joke. (laughs) 
Freeman Dyson's many books include The Scientist as Rebel and Disturbing the Universe. Einstein's humor and humanity were revealed in his public appearances, but also in the vast correspondence he conducted with people of all walks of life. Here's a passage from a letter he wrote to one of his early biographers, who had asked Einstein to recall the details of receiving his first honorary degree. While still a patent examiner in 1909, four years after he discovered special relativity, Einstein was honored during the 350th anniversary of the founding of the University of Geneva by the Protestant reformer John Calvin. So I traveled there on the appointed day, and in the evening in the restaurant of the inn where we were staying, met some Zurich professors. I had with me only my straw hat and my everyday suit. My proposal that I stay away was categorically rejected, and the festivities turned out to be quite funny so far as my participation was concerned. The celebration ended with the most opulent banquet that I have ever attended in all my life. So I said to a Geneva patrician who sat next to me, Do you know what Calvin would have done if he were still here? When he said no and asked what I thought, I said, He would have erected a large pyre and had us all burned because of sinful gluttony. The man uttered not another word. And with this ends my recollection of that memorable celebration. Albert Einstein, writing to a biographer in 1952. If Einstein can be said to have had a spiritual side, this expressed itself in part in his love of music. He played the violin from a young age and was a passionate concertgoer. He attended the stunning debut in 1929 of the 13-year-old Yehudi Menuhin with the Berlin Philharmonic. Menuhin played as soloist in a daunting program of Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms concertos. Einstein was so moved that, as one story goes, he rushed into the boys' room after the performance, took him in his arms, and exclaimed, Now I know that there is a God in heaven. Einstein once mused that had he not been a physicist, he would have been a musician. He said, I often think about music. I daydream about music. I see my life in the form of music. And he carried his violin with him wherever he went. This is an older Menuhin playing Einstein's beloved Bach. Discover more of Einstein's words and ideas at speakingoffaith.org. We've created a special playlist where you can hear archival audio of Einstein speaking about Gandhi and the universal language of science. View photographs of Einstein in his youth and explore his handwritten documents, including a page from Einstein's manuscript on special relativity. Find all of this and more at speakingoffaith.org. Also, some of our richest ideas and most engaging conversations are taking root online through our blog, SOF Observed, and our Facebook fan page and Twitter. We recently streamed live video of my public conversation with Evolution of God author Robert Wright, and we published a moving essay submitted by one of our listeners from Northern Ireland, a reflection on the opportunity of Ash Wednesday and the time that ensues. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this program and our guest's idea that Lent is less for giving up and more for making space. Participate in that discussion at speakingoffaith.org. After a short break, physicist and astrobiologist Paul Davies on Einstein's view of time and eternity and the mind of God. 
I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org and by American Public Media, announcing Krista Tippett's new book, Einstein's God, Conversations About Science and the Human Spirit, available in bookstores now. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, Einstein's God. With two physicists and through the words of Einstein himself, we're exploring Albert Einstein's way of thinking about God, mystery, and eternity. My next guest, Paul Davies, is a theoretical physicist and cosmologist. I interviewed him from Sydney, Australia in 2005, where he spent 15 years at the Australian Center for Astrobiology, which he co-founded. He's currently at Arizona State University, where he directs the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science. Davies has written widely about Einstein's understanding of time and the intriguing scientific and existential questions it raises. Einstein referred to the human perception of time divided into past, present, and future as a stubbornly persistent illusion. Before Einstein, science itself had taught society to think of time as a matter of fixed precision. Time was a universal constant, an arrow progressing at the same rate for everyone everywhere. Nineteenth-century notions of progress hinged on this belief about time. So did the modern Western concept of selfhood, of personal identity accumulated through the passage of time. But Einstein saw time as elastic, not absolute, curving and warping in response to space and mass and motion. I asked Paul Davies why this idea still sounds outlandish to a 21st century mind. The reason that people find Einstein's ideas weird is because we don't notice the effects that he discussed in daily life, and our brains have evolved their common-sense notions in order to cope with daily life. But we now have instruments of such extraordinary sensitivity that we can easily measure the warping of time uh, just from everyday speeds. And I suppose the one that is most dramatic is the global positioning system, without which, uh, in Sydney at least, the taxi drivers would always get lost. Uh, (laughs) This um, system relies upon satellites which are orbiting the Earth And if you don't factor in the warping effects of both motion and gravitation on time, you would very soon get lost within minutes. And so this is an application of the theory of relativity. I think one of the most interesting stories you tell as you describe what Einstein's contribution was to our understanding of space and time is that, in fact, before Newton and Galileo, Ancient cultures thought of time as organic and subjective and cyclical and part of nature. And you say that the clock is an emblem of an intellectual straitjacket that was created in a relatively modern era by scientists and that Einstein then restored time to its rightful place at the heart of nature. That's a very interesting idea. It's certainly true that it was Galileo who recognized that time is the appropriate parameter in which to discuss the nature of motion and in particular of falling bodies. And Newton then developed that idea into what is sometimes called the clockwork universe, uh, that the entire cosmos is a gigantic clockwork mechanism, uh, slavishly following accurate mathematical laws to arbitrary precision. But it didn't enter into the practical world nearly so much until about probably the 19th century. The railroads were being established and it was important for people to be at the station on time. It was important to establish international time zones and national time zones and common uh, ways of doing business. And the telegraph was another very important step in establishing common time zones. And it was curious that probably no more than a few decades after ordinary people began to be subjected to this uh, temporal straitjacket, Einstein came along and uh, upset the apple cart again. And I think uh, historically, part of the reason for this was that he was working in the patent office in Switzerland. And 
precision timekeeping and inventing clocks that would uh, give ever greater precision and enable uh, time zones to be synchronised ever more accurately would have been something he would deal with on a daily basis. Right, and he was in the capital of clocks as well, I guess, in Switzerland. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and so he was obviously thinking very much about measuring time. And this is what led him to the notion that your time and my time uh, might appear different. We might measure different time intervals between the same two events if we're moving differently. And also your gravitational circumstances. Gravity slows time. Time runs a little bit faster on the roof than it does in the basement. We don't notice it in daily life. When you go upstairs and come down again, you don't notice a mismatch. Uh, but you can measure it with accurate clocks. From a religious perspective, there's something intriguing, though, in how these ideas of physics might seem to echo spiritual notions that you can find in Eastern and Western religious thought. And in Australia, where where you're speaking from Australia, there's the notion of dream time. There do seem to be echoes of that, of a sense of time as larger and malleable and mutable and not captive to human reality. It's true that the Australian Aboriginal concept of the dreaming reflects the perception of time of many ancient cultures, Uh, the notion that, in a way, there are two times. There's the one that we live our lives by on a minute-by-minute basis, but then there's this more abstract notion, which is maybe time is the wrong word, maybe it's the opposite of time, maybe it's eternity. Uh, This is a Uh, dualism, I think, that runs through Mm -hmm. all cultures, that there is time and that there is eternity, and that some things... Something beyond time. In some sense have an existence outside of time. Mm -hmm. They are eternal. And I don't fully understand, I can't really grasp the Aboriginal concept of the dream time, but I think it uh, will come closer to the Christian notion of eternity Mm -hmm. than it does to -to day-to-day temporal sequence. And I've been inspired by the work of Augustine, who lived in the fifth century and wrote extensively about the nature of time. And where I think he was spot on and where it resonates with Einstein has to do with the origin of time, the fact that time may have come into existence with the beginning of the universe. We think now that the universe began with the Big Bang, and people are fond of asking what happened before the Big Bang. And that was also a legacy of Einstein also, that we could discern that, correct? Einstein gave us the uh, so-called general theory of relativity in 1915, in which uh, the notion of the expanding universe is based, Mm -hmm. and by extension of that, the universe beginning with a so-called Big Bang. We know this is now 13.7 billion years ago. Einstein's theory of relativity says that this was the origin of time, and there was no time before it. And Augustine was onto this already in the 5th century uh, because he was addressing the question that uh, all small children like to ask, which is, what was God doing before he created the universe? And so Augustine said that the world was created with time and not in time, so he placed God outside of time altogether, a timeless, eternal being. Mm. So we're back to eternity. In 1930, Albert Einstein published an essay on religion and science in the New York Times magazine. It was quoted and reprinted around the world. Einstein described his understanding that emotions such as longing, pain, and fear gave rise to primitive forms of religion. Later, he wrote that moral impulses drove what he called the religions of civilized peoples, especially of the Orient. Einstein described his own inclination towards another kind of religious sensibility, which he called a cosmic religious sense. And he discerned kindred glimpses of this feeling in such diverse figures as the prophets and psalmists of the Hebrew Bible, St. Francis of Assisi, and the Buddha. It is very difficult to elucidate this feeling to anyone who does not experience it. The individual feels the vanity of human desires and aims and the nobility and marvelous order which are revealed in nature and in the world of thought. Individual existence strikes him as a sort of prison and he wants to experience the universe as a single significant whole. The religious geniuses of all ages have been distinguished by this kind of religious feeling. 
in my view, it is the most important function of art and science to awaken this feeling and keep it alive in those who are receptive to it. Albert Einstein writing in the New York Times in 1930. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, Einstein's God. My guest, the physicist and astrobiologist Paul Davies, has written that theology was the midwife of science. In 1995, Davies won the Templeton Prize for Progress in Science and Religion. But like Albert Einstein, he's not a traditionally religious person. At the same time, like Einstein, he speaks often of God and especially of the mind of God. So I asked Paul Davies what a physicist understands in using that phrase. And did Einstein's discoveries influence a new understanding for our time? You have to understand how science emerged in uh, Western culture under the twin influences of uh, Greek philosophy, uh, which taught that human beings can come to understand their world through rational reasoning. And then the second tradition began with Judaism, uh, the notion of a created world order, that there is a supreme lawgiver who brought the universe into existence at a finite time in the past and orders the universe according to a rational plan. So both Christianity and Islam adopted this linear time and a created world order. Uh, and the scientists had that tradition. They said, well, there's an order in nature, but it's hidden from us. We don't see it in daily life. We have to use arcane procedures of experiment and mathematics to uncover this, what I like to call, um, mathematical code, which underpins the nature. We now call that the laws of physics. But this notion that human beings could come to understand it, could read the mind of God, uh, because the application of human reasoning and human inquiry was a tremendous thing, and the birth of science can be identified with this step. I do hear echoes of Einstein also in that kind of language. Here's something he said in 1955. I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are details. Einstein was fond of using the word God, and there yeah. are many famous quotations. Uh, God does not play dice That's with the right. universe. This yes. is his antipathy to quantum physics and its indeterminism. Uh, sometimes he was really using God as just a sort of façon de parler, a convenient metaphor. Uh, but he did have, I think, a genuine theological position. He did not believe in a personal God. He made that very clear. But he did believe in a rational world order. And he expressed what he sometimes called a cosmic religious feeling, a sense of awe, mm -hmm. uh, a sense of admiration at the intellectual ingenuity of the universe, not just its majesty, its grandness, its vast size, but its uh, extraordinary subtlety and beauty and mathematical elegance, something that people who are not physicists find it very hard to grasp. But to a professional physicist, this notion of a underlying mathematical beauty is part and parcel of the subject. And you also raise the kind of religious theological questions that for you still flow out of these great discoveries of Einstein and of physics as we know them now. Um, you know, burning questions that remain, uh, maybe we don't need God for the laws of physics to do their job, but where do the laws of physics come from? Why these laws rather than others? And here's some language of yours. Why a set of laws that drive the searing, featureless gases coughed out of the Big Bang toward life and consciousness and intelligence and cultural activities such as religion, art, mathematics, and science? I mean, are those questions that you can ask now this way down the road, did Einstein consider questions like that? For me, the crucial thing is that the universe is not only beautiful and harmonious and ingeniously put together, mm -hmm. it is also fit for life. And uh, physicists have traditionally ignored life. It's too hard to think about. More and more, though, I think we have to recognize that if the laws of physics hadn't been pretty close to what they are, there would be no life. There would be no observers. Now, some scientists just shrug and say, well, so what? You know, if it had been different, we wouldn't be here to worry about it. But I think that's unsatisfactory. And the reason I think it's unsatisfactory is because the universe has not only given rise to life, it's not only given rise to mind, it's given rise to thinking beings who can comprehend the universe uh, through science and mathematics. 
we can, so to speak, glimpse the mind of God, as we've been discussing. And I think that this suggests, to me anyway, that life and mind are not just trivial extras. They're not just an embellishment on the grand scheme of things. They're a fundamental part of the nature of the universe. Um, If you imagine playing the role of God and having some sort of uh, machine in front of you with a whole lot of knobs, and you can twiddle the knobs and change things. Twiddle one knob, make the electron a bit heavier. Twiddle another knob and make the strong nuclear force a bit stronger. Do you soon discover that you have to fine-tune those settings to extraordinary precision in order for there to be life? And the question is, what are we to make of that? And, you know, really these things, at the end of the day, boil down largely to a matter of personal choice because we can't really test either. Well, certainly not in our current state of knowledge. Physicist and astrobiologist Paul Davies. He says that the current conversation between science and religion is different in physics than in biology. So when he speaks of the fine-tuning of the universe, or when Einstein spoke of a mind or superior spirit behind nature, this does not mirror a theory of intelligent design. The order behind the universe which Einstein discerned was manifest in the laws of physics. Einstein rejected the notion of a creator who would interfere with the laws ordering his own creation. However, Einstein's discoveries did give rise to the fields of quantum physics and chaos theory. And some scientists in those fields are now suggesting that there might be room for an involved God within the laws of physics themselves. I asked Paul Davies about this. Yes, there is, uh, has always been this problem uh, mm-hmm. for physicists about uh, an active God. If God does anything, God has to be at work in the world. And now, if we go back to the sort of universe that Newton had and the, the one that Einstein supported, the notion of a deterministic universe, a clockwork universe, mm-hmm. then this becomes a real problem because uh, if God is to change anything, then God has to uh, overrule God's own uh, laws. And that doesn't look a very edifying prospect theologically or scientifically. It's horrible on both counts. But when one gets to an indeterministic universe, if you allow quantum physics, Mm -hmm. uh, then there is some sort of lassitude in the operation of these laws. There are interstices having to do with quantum uncertainty into which, if you want, you could insert the hand of God. So, for example, if we think of a typical quantum process as being like the roll of a die, you know, God does not play dice, Einstein said. Well, it seems that, you know, God does play dice. Right, right. Uh, Then the question is, you know, if God could load the quantum dice, this is one way of influencing what happens in the world, working through these quantum uncertainties. Now, some people uh, certainly have pushed that idea. John Polkinghorne is one who's spoken about it. Bob Russell for the Centre of Theology and Natural Sciences in Berkeley uh, likes that point of view of God not, uh, in any sense, usurping the laws of physics, but working within the inherent lassitude Mm -hmm. that quantum physics provides. And it's a possible way of God to gain causal purchase in the world without changing any of the laws that we know. I think as we close, I'd like to come back to this idea of eternity. We touched on that a bit when we were talking about time, which was such an important subject for Einstein. And this this idea that is in many cultures and many religious traditions of a sort of a distinction between the temporal and the eternal. And I'd like to read you a passage from a letter that I found that Einstein wrote when he was a bit older and just see how you respond to it as a physicist. He wrote this actually to the Queen of Belgium and who was suffering a great grief. And he said to her, and yet... As always, the springtime sun brings forth new life, and we may rejoice because of this new life and contribute to its unfolding, and Mozart remains as beautiful and tender as he always was and always will be. There is, after all, something eternal that lies beyond the hand of fate and of all human delusions, and such eternals lie closer to an older person than to a younger one, oscillating between fear and hope. For us, there remains the privilege of experiencing beauty and truth in their purest forms. I don't think this is an Einstein many of us know when we just think of his scientific legacy. Uh, Those are beautiful words, and I was quite unaware of them, Uh, Mm. very poetic. And I can see 
where they're coming from because, as we discussed earlier, Einstein was the person to establish this notion of uh, what is sometimes called block time, that the past, present and future are just personal decompositions of time and that the universe of past, present and future in some sense has an eternal existence. And so even though individuals may come and go, their lives which are in the past uh, for their descendants nevertheless still have some existence within this block time. Nothing takes that away. Uh, you may have your three score years and ten measured by a date after your death. You are no more. And yet within this grander sweep of the timescape, nothing has changed. Your life is still there in its entirety. It's, it's a wonderful thought, isn't it? I mean, it opens up our imagination about what it means to be human and the universe, our place in it. I think that physics impacts upon our view of the universe and our place within it in so many ways, in the nature of time, in the nature of reality through quantum physics, and as we've discussed, the fact that the universe is fit for life and we're a component in this bio-friendly universe that has such ingenious laws that can enable life to come into existence. And it puts our own position on this planet into a very different context. It cuts both ways, because on the one hand, we can see that we are not the center of the universe, we're not the pinnacle of creation, that we are maybe a small part, maybe only one among myriad living systems throughout the universe. And yet, nevertheless, we have emerged and we can truly feel part of nature in a cosmic sense, not just in a local sense, but I think in a genuinely cosmic sense. And, and I think that that's deeply inspiring in whatever one's religious convictions. And even if you have no religious convictions, I often um, say that if I talk to someone like Stephen Weinberg, who's a professed atheist and quite militant. He, he's the uh, one who so, said the more we learn, the more pointless it seems. Uh, that's right. And yet, mm -hmm. nevertheless, he will share in the awe, the wonder, the majesty, the beauty of the universe in this uh, cosmic connection that I've been talking about. He sees the same facts as I do, but can't bring himself to believe that there's any point behind it all. And that that's uh, where he and I would power company. We'd agree on all of the science, but to me it overwhelmingly suggests that the universe is about something, that there is a point to it, and that we're part of whatever point that is. Paul Davies' books include The Mind of God and About Time, Einstein's Unfinished Revolution. Earlier in this hour, you heard physicist Freeman Dyson. Here in closing are some lines from a letter Albert Einstein wrote in 1927. I cannot conceive of a personal God who would directly influence the actions of individuals or would sit in judgment on creatures of his own creation. I cannot do this in spite of the fact that mechanistic causality has, to a certain extent, been placed in doubt by modern science. My religiosity consists in a humble admiration of the infinitely superior spirit that reveals itself in the little that we, with our weak and transitory understanding, can comprehend of reality. Morality is of the highest importance, but for us, not for God. You've told us across the years that our programs with and about scientists are some of your favorites. They're some of mine, too. And we've now turned 10 of them into a book, Einstein's God, with this program you've just heard at its core and in readable form. The book also includes Evolution and Wonder about Charles Darwin, Jan 11 on Mathematics, Purpose, and Truth, Sherwin Newland on the Biology of the Spirit, and our explorations of stress and the balance within and the soul in depression. It's out now, direct in paperback, as an affordable resource for individuals and groups of every size. Learn more about Einstein's God, the book, at speakingoffaith.org. 
And while you're on our site, you can download a discussion guide with questions and facilitator notes for small groups or classes to talk about Einstein's challenging ideas. And if you're interested in exploring Einstein's passionate engagement on issues of war and race and learning more about his Jewish identity, we've got a second program for you, Einstein's Ethics. And you can download a free MP3 of that show as well as today's program through our podcast and website. Look for it on our homepage, speakingoffaith.org. Speaking of Faith is produced by Colleen Scheck, Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Shuba Bala. Our producer and editor of All Things Online is Trent Gillis with Andrew Dayton. Special thanks this week to Stephen Epp and Theodore de la Jeune Lune, Professors Keith Olive and Michael Jansen of the University of Minnesota, and the Albert Einstein Archives at Hebrew University of Jerusalem and Princeton University. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. Additional support comes from the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, on the web at FordFound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Speaking of Faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. This program is made possible in part by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the NEH. Next time, a public conversation about the evolution of God with Robert Wright. Please join us. American Public Media.